0: Hello, and welcome to Ancestry Podcast with Lucy Luce and Lily Love. But for this limited series we do not have Lily here due to some health issues that she has unfortunately had to deal with over the past few months. So if you're wondering why we are, have been on the hiatus that is why. So today me Lucy. I'm here with my good friend Ashley Ward, and we are going to be going over a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth and Ancient Wisdom by Jonathan Haidt. So Ashley. Why don't you tell
1: my listeners who you are and just about yourself? Yeah, totally. So uh first of all I'm super excited to be joining you. I don't have a lot of experience in podcasting, so I am just jazzed to be jumping into this world. So again, my name was Ashley and I, I'm actually a graduate student. I have my bachelor's in psychology and I have an education specialist degree in school psychology. And I am currently in my last year of my uh, doctoral program, earning my doctorate in school psychology. So I'm hoping to kind of bring that perspective to our conversations today. But I am still learning and I take full ownership of that. So with that being said, I'm still jazzed to kind of jump into this book. And as Lucy will kind of clarify, I haven't read this book yet, but I have heard wonderful things about it, so I'm just going to kind of come in with fresh ears and fresh eyes and and bring my own perspective. Yes, and I'm happy to have your perspective, because
0: the author of this book is a, a professor of psychology, and a lot of his ideas deal with positive psychology, which I know, just from our conversations that we've had, that you're really into positive psychology, and you've uh, studied that in school.
1: Yes, I yeah, I positive psychology is my jam. I love it. I love anything that's like very strength based. You know, solution focused psychology is such a is such a big component of like school psychology field in general. But so I, as soon as you told me, kind of like this was like one of the main points of this book. I got very excited to join in on this project.
0: So can you
1: kind of explain what positive psychology means? It's kind of an umbrella. So <laughs> a, a simple explanation may not be able. I want to be able to, to do it justice. So I don't know if I can provide such a simple explanation. Um, but I mean, most of it in general is in the way it's finding, finding a way to kind of help people that's more positive focused than negative. So that means, and not necessarily avoiding the negative, but whenever you're in therapy sessions, instead of focusing on everything that's going wrong, let's talk about what's going right. How can we make more of what's going right? And again, that's definitely simplifying it, but it's kind of just, you know, looking for those those aspects where things are going well without ignoring what's going on right. But it's just, it's just kind of putting a more more hyper focus on on the positive aspects of just life in general because the negative just has a way of of shining through regardless so Mm -hmm. we have to we have to try to to, for the positive to shine
0: well do you want to just jump into the book now absolutely
1: let's jump All right. So
0: I started reading this book. Actually, I found it in the library. I was looking for another book. And this was the book that I was looking for wasn't there. And this one was like in its place. And I just read The Happiness Hypothesis. And I was like, who doesn't need a hypothesis for to be happy? And then when I read the tagline, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom, I was like, this is perfect. It fits in with the idea why Lily and I started this podcast, because we went to take a deep dive into ancient traditions of our ancestors to learn how to incorporate those practices and traditions into our modern life to help us better our lives nowadays. So the author, his name is Jonathan Haidt, and he starts by telling us at the beginning of the book that he's taken Examples from what he calls ancient wisdom from the three great zones of classical thought. And those are India, which he's taken the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and the sayings of the Buddha. And then from China, he's taken from the Analects of Confucius, the Tao Te Ching, the writings of Ming Tao and other philosophers of the Mediterranean, which those are, the Old and New Testament, the Greek and Roman philosophers, and the Quran, and then he also took from philosophy and literature from over the last five hundred years, and he also because he was he's a psychologist, there are a lot of um, examples from modern psychology like from Jung and oh what's his name Freud <laughs> the biggest one and then also um he references a lot of studies and things like that from from modern psychology and so he said that from every time that he found a a psychological claim that he saw was a statement about human nature or the workings of the mind or heart he wrote it down so that's where this book came from was that he put together all these ideas and then came up with a top 10 of the most widespread what he called psychological ideas of humankind
1: okay so he basically like did all of this discipline research and kind of came up with like central themes mm-hmm. for what numerous people said lead to happiness. Right. Okay, yeah. cool. So he took from all cultures, all ideas,
0: and then yeah, kind of came up with his own happiness hypothesis. So some things, you know, we may not fully agree with, we may not fully understand yet. Um, There might be some things that we need to
1: Incorporate into our daily life once we uh, learn. I can appreciate that because I think that even if something doesn't necessarily like align with our ideologies or worldviews, it doesn't mean that they're not worth discussing. Mm -hmm. So I think even if there's some things that we don't necessarily believe or prescribe to, yeah, like it doesn't mean that we can't have like a good discussion about it. know I feel I feel like both of us are pretty open-minded so let's get into it
0: Yeah. yeah like I like to look at really all kinds of ideas and then make my own agreement with that idea you know I grew up Christian and I kind of like backed away from that but as I've grown older I've started looking at it in a more philosophical kind of way And looking at like what are the lessons Mm -hmm. that they're teaching people. Because really like the Bible, when you look at it in a philosophical kind of way, is really just trying to teach people that there is some kind of magical universal force that we can't really understand or explain. And so like giving it a name, like calling it God, helps people understand it in a better way
1: yeah so I love philosophy um and I actually I love religious studies as well even though I'm not a religious person exactly I think that it's really fascinating to kind of learn about the the roots of that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and I can remember being in in classes way back in my undergrad days and thinking about that thinking about how like thought-provoking some of these things were and I feel like uh, these types of conversations and these type this type of literature that we're discussing today is a really good place to kind of start just opening your mind a little bit and not saying that you need to question your beliefs or your thoughts. Like, that's totally what your beliefs are and what your thoughts are. Like, that's 100% your business, and you go with whatever works for you. Like, no one's here to judge on that front. I'm just saying I think that it's it's great to kind of think about different perspectives and that just grows empathy Mm -hmm. towards other people as well and just kind of it, it grows a greater understanding for people who have a different view than you right and i
0: also think that it might be a good idea to kind of question your beliefs at some points and because
1: yeah, and like, that I I, might... I just don't want yeah I think that you that's don't fair. want to be
0: judgmental of people for
1: right. I'm yeah. just saying I'm not going to judge you, but you, if you want to question yourself, like I I think that I don't think anybody should blindly follow anything. Mm-hmm. I think that having this kind of critical thinking skills are really valuable as uh, an adolescence, adult, at whatever age skill you are. I just, I don't want to be, you know, I'm, I'm no one to judge anybody else. I just wanted to make that clear. I was like, we're not being judging anyone's right. beliefs here. No. Uh, yeah.
0: We're being open and just, yeah, learning. Because a lot of this stuff is new to me. Well, some of it stuff that I knew. There were things that I've kind of uh, picked up from things that I read. But picked then, up on the streets. Yeah. Actually, in books. <laughs> but the, the books are my streets. <laughs>
1: well, the library. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the library. I learned the school of hard knocks in the, the aisles of the library. <laughs> so, okay, back to the book. Um, In his intro, Haight says that... He believes there are two ancient truths of how the mind works. And the first is that the mind is divided into two sometimes conflicting parts. And the second is that thinking makes it so, which is a quote from Shakespeare. And um, kind of in conjunction with that is our life is the creation of our mind, which is a quote from Buddha. And then the two truths for our social lives that he says is the golden rule or reciprocity, Mm -hmm. which is
1: do unto others as you will have done unto yourself.
0: Yeah, Yeah. so be nice and other people will be nice to you, Mm -hmm. basically. And we are all by nature hypocrites, and this is why it is so hard for us to follow the golden rule faithfully. And that's a quote from the author Jonathan Haidt. So, the two truth for our social life is that you have to follow the golden rule, but that it's hard as humans, with our human nature, to follow the mm-hmm. golden rule.
1: Yeah, that hypocrite word makes it a hard pill to swallow, but it doesn't mean it's not there. Right. But also, I feel like
0: when you're saying that it's by nature, that it's a human thing that yeah, we all deal
1: with. So. Exactly. Like, we're, humans are imperfect. We're imperfect. We don't get it right every time. Yeah, I know that definitely makes sense. Like, we've all been a little bit mean to somebody, or done or said a snarky comment behind someone's back, or yeah. you know, cut someone off it while we're driving. Like, we've every single person yeah. has done something. I don't care how good of a person you are, everybody has done something because you just can't help it. And you don't necessarily like, you're not maybe meaning to be mean or negative or whatever you want to call it it just it just happens because we're flawed right it happens yeah we sometimes things happen and
0: you just like your gut reaction is to react in a not nice manner yeah and then you might you know stay up late thinking about how bad you treated someone but you still might have done it yeah
1: and i think like and I'm I just, I understand this is a very early perspective that I'm about to say, but just because, you know, he was talking about how this is like one of the big parts of the mind is this idea of how we live our social lives is this golden idea rule. I'm just kind of thinking about how it's still like, still ultimately the goal. We still mm-hmm. all want to do the right thing when it matters. Like we still all want to be the types of people who do the right thing whenever it most matters was you know the human nature makes it impossible to do so, but as long as we kind of try to do the right thing right. and to have the
0: intention right it's like, like as long don't as, come into it thinking, oh i'm flawed,
1: and I just can't live up to these i can't standards. do it, so i 'm going to be a scumbag or whatever right. i I definitely know people like that. Yeah, me I was too.
0: A... we probably know the same people, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but as long as like you kind of have that self-awareness and you try to be like okay well that may have been slightly shitty of me but I'm gonna try and do better next Mm -hmm. time I'm gonna like try and make the better decision moving forward like that's such a big deal like that's huge for self-growth is like that decision to kind of join on that path and kind of have that like self-awareness is such an underrated skill And no one really treats it like it's a skill, but it is. It takes effort, it takes practice, and it develops over time. It is a skill. It takes, like, um, what's the word? Persistence. Persistence? That's not
0: the word I was thinking. (laughs) Um, Self-discipline.
1: Yeah, you definitely. It
0: takes discipline. Yeah, like, People
1: think that self-awareness is something that inherently happens, but that's not true. It takes no. It takes a lot of effort. Yeah. Like you said, a lot of discipline. You have to
0: make the decision to do it, and then you have to you, do it,
1: and, and then, you, then you have to you pick have to, yourself up. You have Things. to continuously make the decision to do it. It mm-hmm. doesn't happen once. You have to continuously say and that that's with a lot of things. I mean, I'm not going to dive too far into this wormhole because I, this book I know gets into it. But, like, like, with things like The Golden Rule, you have to continuously kind of make the decision and continue making the decision every single day that, yes, I am going to follow The Golden Rule. I am going to try today to, you know, treat others a little bit better than I treated them yesterday. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying give up yourself like I'm not saying like deprecate your yourself and your own actions that mm-hmm. you know you're not trying to like take away from from your shine to give others the world, mm-hmm. but just you know even kill let's let's just treat them how you want to be treated you know whenever you you like the pleases and thank yous and excuse me's, just extend that. Just little things can go a really long way. Yeah, and even if people aren't treating you the way
0: that you want to be treated, like, you still need to treat others the way that you want to be treated. And
1: if, and like what I was saying before, if you slip up and you're like, oh, or maybe I wasn't kind to that person or whatever you know that's you know what i'm saying about self awareness it's okay to slip up but try to to be like okay that wasn't great tomorrow i'll be better and that's kind
0: of where i was saying about discipline like giving yourself a goal and then not just saying maybe tomorrow i'll be better but in the morning that day waking up and saying okay yesterday i wasn't that great kind of evaluating yourself and then Looking back and then being like, okay, today I will be better. And then setting a goal and then making that happen. Mm -hmm. But you can't... You're not going to get better unless you make a goal and stick to it.
1: Yeah, I completely agree.
0: So, where does happiness come from? Hate says it comes from within. By not making the world conform to your desires. According to Buddha, Stoic philosophers from Greek and Roman... um, they all counseled that you have to break emotional attachment and cultivate an attitude of acceptance. So, as, like, I've studied a lot of Buddhist philosophies, and that's what a lot of their philosophies teach, is that you can't be attached to anything. That includes your loved ones, your pets, any of your belongings, because you never know when it could just go away.
1: How did they... Define attachment in that sense because, like, whenever you were first talking about I thought you meant like attachments to these like ideas of the world, and I was like, Oh, yeah, that sounds like ACT, like acceptance commitment therapy. Like, yeah, I get that, but then you said loved ones, and it made me be like, Oh, I don't know what they mean now. Yeah. So, well, what, what do they mean I, I
0: understand, well, I don't, I'm not a Buddhist philosopher, I've yeah, only no, read I books. Just want your so, what I've understood it to mean is to just not have an attachment to anything. The only thing that you truly own is yourself and
1: your body. But that's not saying, like, don't love.
0: No, it's anything. not love. It's for me, I learned this really hard when I lost Monroe, my dog, because I was very attached to her. And then when she was just gone, I didn't have her anymore. And. I was already in a place where I was learning and trying to find like meaning in life and then when I lost her, I started questioning like why, why, why and a lot of the things that I was reading was saying to not have attachments to things. So for me to not have an attachment was that you can love things still but to know that nothing is ever truly yours it's just like I kind of look at everything that I have as borrowed the universe has given it to me okay but it could also take it away
1: Okay, see, okay, I get I get now more what you're saying. Like, I was a little thrown at first because, like, of course you're attached to, you know, your parents and mm-hmm. your spouses and your, your children and your loved ones. You're like, what do you mean attached? Like, there's a whole, there's a lot of literature about a parent and child attachment styles. Like, I don't yeah. know. Like, so at first I was thrown, but the more that you kind of explained it, like I feel like the word attachment, the way that it is kind of more defined within this context, is really about like dependency. Yeah. Like you're putting your whole self within this one entity, whatever it may be, and you need to kind of experience yourself without that entity as well. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what you're saying as well? Yeah,
0: because like with Monroe, I called her like my best friend, even though she was a dog, and yeah, I that's fair. I loved that's that fair little white thing with all of my heart so then when she died I felt like I lost a child but like now I have come to accept that nothing I have is mine and so I feel like I could deal with a loss like that in a better way than I did when that happened because I didn't have the tools that I have now And I think that's what he means by cultivate an attitude of acceptance is that you learn to accept things as they come and go and you know, or you learn to know that we don't have things.
1: No relationship, no matter how good or positive it is, ever truly lasts forever. Right. Because none of us are immortal like we all, you know leave at some point yeah like even like like, I've come to
0: accept that even my own life like I don't know when I will die like I could die tomorrow and it's something that's much harder to accept like your own death but I've tried to make like more of a peace I guess with knowing that I will someday die I mean it's better to accept it than to fear it
1: Yeah. yeah in some points I think you should
0: fear death?
1: I think that from an evolutionary standpoint, fear keeps
0: us alive. Biologically, (laughs) yes. I mean, I'm not doing stupid things, (laughs) but but like mentally I'm thinking like, I'm okay. I know that I could die. And instead of thinking of the inevitable and like, oh no, I could die
1: and I need to live in fear and not go up to Into the world, or whatever. From that point, again, makes me think about exception and commitment therapy, like a type of therapy that is most common for people with like terminal illnesses and stuff, because it kind of teaches them to be okay with the reality of their situation if it's things that are literally unchangeable mm-hmm. some things we just don't have control of people with terminal cancer or whatever it may be and you know you have to figure out a way to still finish living out your life and not be so pissed off or scared mm-hmm. or whatever and acceptance is, is honestly the best way I think like w- whenever you were talking earlier there was something about the worded you're like oh, don't be too attached to anybody or don't be attached to anybody but i feel like and this is totally just my opinion because i i tend to think about attachment in a very different way than how this book references it mm. um and that's just, maybe that's like the nurturing side of me or, well i think that because I...
0: attachment has it has multiple definitions it
1: absolutely and that's why i asked how is it defined here yeah. I definitely can't mean what I think that it means if it's talking like this. So I was like, okay, what are we talking about here? Um, but I, I feel like language, how I interpret it, is more like don't be one hundred percent reliant on anything else. Like, don't put your whole self mm-hmm. in something. Yeah. I guess I, I kind of already said that, but I just that I don't know, like something about that language. I was like, ooh, just because I, I could see how. That those words would make someone be like, "Mm, you crazy, bro. I know what the hell you're talking about. I'm attached to my family. Yeah. Well, like, I think
0: because I have read a lot of Buddhist literature that... I knew what he was meaning, but right. I I understand where you're coming from because I think when I first started reading about attachment, like don't be attached to things, it you're like, took wait, literally my dog dying for me to understand what yeah. that meant.
1: Because you hear attachment and you think care, yeah, and like so a mother be attached. is attached to their baby, right? And you're not going to just not care for your baby. So you're like, oh my God, like, of course I'm going to be attached. That's why I'm like, it's a different culture and words. That's why it's it's important to kind of think about the context and the culture that, that this context was cultivated within and kind of be like, okay, like, what's the, what's the underlining principle here? Like, mm-hmm. I may not be interpreting this the way that it's meant to be interpreted. And it's just, you know, I am just trying to practice. Some self awareness and and of my own just then and trying to understand like okay what are they really trying to say here? Mm. So off track, my bad.
0: No, I think it was good because I think a lot of people probably. We're thinking the same thing you were thinking the language
1: sounds harsh yeah
0: because when you sure. say no attachment I mean I feel like a lot of people probably have like a gut reaction to that.
1: because like in the westernized civilization we don't think about that term that way mm-hmm. it, that's not what it means here so it's mm-hmm. even in the scientific world attachment you think about attachment styles it's not even thought about that in like the psychological world or, or social work or mm-hmm.
0: yeah know. it takes like a shift in the mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's why I wanted to give. But like, there is no other word for, for that that I can think of. What other word would you use besides? I mean, it took a
1: whole fifteen-minute conversation. Yeah, and, and we didn't come, come up, up with, with any, any other. Word. Well, I don't think we needed a single word as long as we understood that it was a different. Yeah, just a different definition. Don't put yourself in a whole like entity, <laughs> because that was the best thing that I could think of to describe what that meant. Mm-hmm. And a, there might be a better way. The author says that the external
0: conditions of life that he believes that can make us lastingly happier is relatedness, which is the bonds we form with others, and love. And then he also breaks that down into passionate versus true love. hmm so, passionate, I didn't write this down in my notes, but I think that's like when you're, you think you're in love and... So, like, lust? Probably, or, you know,
1: personally, my... Is he equating it to, like, sex?
0: Maybe. Let me see if I can find I know.
1: it. I will say, while you're looking that up, that personal relationships in general are... Such strong indicators for positive outcomes with people, like with people that are seeking psychotherapy, personal relationships are so freaking crucial for people that are kind of experiencing, well, life, really. Having just even one person that you can relate to, having one person that you still feel safe talking mm-hmm. to um, at any age point, it, like it's not just only kids, but adults too. Like I tend to think more towards kids because that's who I work with on day to day, but it's, it's kids and adults. Like having even just one person that you can kind of feel comfortable and safe with and you feel like they're in your corner, right? Like it can make such a big difference. So I definitely can get on board with these external conditions that he's talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've read quite a bit of Brene Brown, mm-hmm. and she talks a lot about how our human's greatest desire is to be loved and to be accepted and to, like, be seen, basically. And having, like, what you're saying, relatedness is like a belonging, mm-hmm. to be loved and accepted and to belong the relatedness is somebody saying i love you and i accept you for who you are and i am also yeah you."
1: even these like the relatedness the way that he talks about it here like bonds forms other people that can it doesn't even necessarily need to be like a loving relationship in the way that's like familial like family loving it can be like just simply a positive one like a teacher and a student Even someone who you consider a confidant at work, you know, Mm -hmm. or or whatever. Like, Like, it doesn't necessarily have to be super, super strong. But even, like, something that's positive for someone who is struggling and doesn't have a lot of people... Mm-hmm. That can be very impactful in a very positive way for someone's outcome, whether it be graduating high school, you know, when they have that one teacher in their corner mm-hmm. or someone who's like struggling to just get through their span at work and they just have that one coworker or like yeah. whatever it may be. So it's not necessarily like an I love you thing all the time. It's just that support yeah. can be so valuable. I guess to me, that support is a form of love. I see that
0: and I feel that as a form of love yeah you might not actually say to that person that you love them or that person might not Mm -hmm. tell you that they love you but I mean for them to give you that support and you just kind of equating
1: like like, like, care and love together yeah. yeah okay I can see that
0: he says that later on the in the book he's going to go more into depth into the love passionate versus true love but he says he's found that passionate love always cools and then he's going to go more into what true love actually is later in the
1: book true he, love in as okay i'm sorry but like as in romantic relationships he, or non-romantic relationships or he doesn't specify he's just yet. saying in I guess it be uh,
0: right relatedness okay like, so so probably either yeah okay either either
1: then that makes me think that the passionate versus true love, the passionate is more like a lust thing or like superficial.
0: Yeah, or it could be, you know, I've personally been in passionate relationships where you think you're in love with someone because it's more like intense and they do end up cooling off or like there comes a point where you realize maybe this is not actual love. Yeah because you're not treating me with the respect and the
1: acceptance that I like really desire but people people glamorize what passion is or what it should mm-hmm. be and in real life that shouldn't work out you need someone that respects you right. please yeah. like in real life like that's not oh my god i want a passionate love Like, if you love each other, you can still have great sex. Like, it doesn't mean only the passionate or quote-unquote passionate people have, like, a good sex life or whatever. Like, you can... Yeah, or that that's even, like, true love. Yeah, like... I think that TV and movies, at least in the U.S., or probably most uh, Westernized cultures, but especially in the U.S., like, the idea of having a passionate relationship is definitely glamorized, And we're kind of taught that, like, especially young girls, we're taught that, oh, my God, like, yes, this is the goal. This is what I want. I don't, like, I'm I'm watching this on TV. Can't wait to have this. It's Mm going to make me happy. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to marry someone, and it's going to be passionate. (laughs) And then then you get older, and you're like, this sucks in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, because, well,
0: that passion isn't, like, it's, really not real love and it eventually fizzles out and then you're stuck with someone who treats you horribly and then you realize that that's not the life you want and you want somebody who's maybe just boring but who loves and respects
1: you? Well, someone who loves and respects you doesn't have to be boring. A relationship that isn't fueled with fighting and yelling, and then super hot sex, and then fighting and yelling—like right. just because that's, that's I mean not that— boring. isn't isn't <laughs> happiness. Don't confuse happiness with freaking boring, because they're not the same thing. That's also a quote from one Ron. Swanson of Parks (laughs) and Recreation, by the way. Love it. I didn't know that I was going there until I went there, and then it just came flying out of my mouth.
0: Jonathan Haidt, the author of this book, talks about human growth and development, and um, he talks about the idea of what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. But he says that that's a dangerous oversimplification because... The th- most things that don't kill you can still do a lot of damage to your life.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: He calls, or he has what he calls post-traumatic growth, and um, says that that reveals when and why people grow from adversity, and what you can do to prepare yourself for trauma or to cope with it after the fact. I like the idea that that we can grow from this and that we can cope from it even though you know that we have this this bad times or whatever you want to call it in our lives that we can find a growth answer we can choose growth over this is a bad thing that happened or even just tucking it under the rug that there is growth
1: and i think on some level growth has trauma it's inevitable and i say that very cautiously because i don't think that it happens without a lot of effort and again a lot of self-awareness and i i, I know i've mentioned self-awareness a couple of times but i i think that it's really invaluable But even without having that level of self-awareness, everyone has a desire to move past whatever their personal traumas may be. And everyone has personal traumas. They don't care what kind of backstory, family, support systems you have in place. Everybody has a trauma. Mm -hmm. They just, you just do. You may not even be aware of how that trauma has formed your now thoughts or behaviors or personality or whatever. But everybody does have a trauma And after the trauma, everyone tries to figure out how to keep going. And sometimes we use mechanisms that are healthy. Sometimes we use mechanisms that are unhealthy. It just, it really just depends on a person by person basis. And I think that everyone Mm -hmm. wants to kind of move past it and grow and be okay and be like, okay, like I'm going to move past that. I'm going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. Let's just get to tomorrow and then let's get to the next day and let's keep going if God should do. Maybe raising a family or just simply continuing living your life, whatever that looks like. As far as the growth that they're talking about here and kind of like growing as a person, like learning from your trauma and learning how that has shaped you, it is a process and it takes a lot of conversations with other people. It takes a lot of Mm self-reflection. It takes a lot of pause in thought, it takes, you have to kind of look back on where, you know, whatever caused that trauma and be like, okay, was that a pattern based on, you know, family lineage? Or was that a pattern because of my behavior? Was that a pattern because of someone else's behavior? Was that, and then, you know, sometimes it's not a pattern. Sometimes it's just something terrible that happened that you have no control over mm-hmm. and you have to still figure out a way to somehow grow from that. Um, And it's, it's not always an easy thing. And not everyone has equal access to a mental health care professional. So um, I think that human growth is always an interesting point, because like, even though we all want to grow, and we all inevitably grow in some way, Uh, growing in a more positive way that's going to be healing is not always an easy route. Even if it's not stated in that language, it's always kind of the goal for people. Mm -hmm.
0: That kind of brings to his next point was that, well, he talks about virtue and morality. And when you were talking about finding the patterns, Mm -hmm. that I feel like kind of goes with morality because usually with the patterns, it's generational curses, as I say that in quotations, it not really curses, but generational abuse or things that get passed down from, you know, family to family that become a normality almost. But right. then when you look at it, I feel like that's a moral issue because then a lot of that stuff is not really morally correct in society beating your child or sexually abusing your child. or
1: Yeah, well, and I I agree and disagree with you. I mean, obviously, like, I don't think that any of that is morally comprehensible, but I think that whenever you're in this situation sometimes and you... Like, if you, I'm not defending anybody who's, like, done this to their family. But, I mean, there are other family patterns like alcoholism and stuff like that that you could just get traced down and down and down and down. But I, I think that sometimes whenever you grow up in an environment and that environment is all that you see, you don't really have the understanding or thought that, hey, this is immoral. You know that murder is immoral. You know that rape is immoral. You know that some of these other things are... 100% always immoral. They're always wrong. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that it isn't immoral, but I'm saying that they don't have the, I'm saying that they don't have the perception that it's immoral.
0: Well, for me personally, I grew up, as I mentioned, Christian, and in the Bible, there's a lot of things saying drinking is bad, but I grew up with an alcoholic father, so that was always pushed under the rug, where it was like, you follow the Bible. Just compartmentalized. Yeah. yeah. I was taught that it was morally wrong, but in our family, it was just swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that we didn't know. It was that it was just ignored. And that's, we probably could do a whole podcast on just morality and generational patterns. But basically what he says about that is that later in the book, he's going to show how concepts of virtue and morality have changed and narrowed over the centuries and how ancient ideas about virtue and moral development may hold promise for our new age. He doesn't say new, he just says age. And then also how positive psychology in regards to that is beginning to deliver on the promise of offering a way to develop our strengths and virtues. So the conclusion of his introduction, he ends with the question of meaning. And he asks, why do some people find meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in life, but others do not? So, with this book, he looks at his own research. So, he researched things of disgust and elevation and awe. And he looks at his own research as well as all of these other ideas from other cultures to try to find an understanding of the human quest for meaning and like what is the meaning of life, and he hopes to have an answer of incorporating ancient ideas that give us an idea of what our purpose is. So why do you think some people find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life, but others do not?
1: a question for me
0: should i just ask the audience
1: yeah that's a whole hypothetical i mean that's why this is a happiness hypothesis because that's a whole hypothetical question okay so i do not know
0: if you know why do some people find meaning purpose and fulfillment in life but others do not you can email us at ancestrypod at gmail.com so that's ancestry a n c e s t o r y o d Ancestry pod at gmail.com and email us for any questions or your answer to the meaning and purpose and fulfillment of life and next episode ashley and i will be discussing the first chapter of the happiness hypothesis book called the divided self so thanks for listening see you
1: later